Welcome to the Gem of All Mechanisms podcast, where we interview those in the know from academics and computer scientists to policymakers, philosophers and more about the effects of 21st century tech on us all. PCS, the Chartered Institute for IT, supports people who work in the industry and wants to make IT good for the whole of society by shaping policy, influencing change and raising educational standards. My name is Brian Mansman from BCS, the Chartered Institute for IT. I'm talking to Luciano Floridi. Hello, Luciano. Hello, and thank you for the invitation. No, thank you for speaking to us. So, Luciano, you're, you're a philosopher. You spoke to us last year at the BCS Insights Conference, some fascinating stuff about AI ethics, so we're going to carry on that conversation, really. First of all, I'd just like to talk to you a little bit about the terms that uh, we use for AI. So when we spoke a couple of years ago in an interview, we, we mentioned that the word disruption, for example, has now become very passe. Uh, now in the intervening time where ethics has come up the uh, the agenda, I think, a little bit, we see a lot of so-called blue washing. What do you think are the terms we need to look out for now that a little bit alarm bells ring? I agree with you that there's a risk of uh, using words in such a way that become so oily, so slippery, that they don't make any friction anymore. Was, uh, how many times have you know it has to be accountable, transparent, uh, ethical, and every word has lost almost its uh, real uh, grating you know, traction. It's, mm. no, it's no longer abrasive. It doesn't you know, uh, make any noise anymore. It's smooth and round and, and goes without saying, and of course... Uh, any word or any uh, uh, other synonym would do. That's that's a shame, that, and it shouldn't be that way. Um, we should use uh, uh, words like uh, people use a uh, you know, formula in chemistry. You know, if you say H two O, you mean water, and it's not H three O, and it's not H O. Uh, so if you say, for example, that uh, the, the IT has to be, shall we say, sustainable, uh, just to use another word, uh, it really means something yeah. more than just oh yeah yeah green. Washing, and if you say you no, know, AI has to be ethical. It's not another blue washing, which of course always against you no know, ethical AI, responsible AI. So I think we should um, pause for a moment and think carefully about the words we're using uh, because they have plenty of factual consequences. As all lawyers know, as uh, all IT people know, it's like coding. Every uh, bit of uh, code there makes a difference. Yeah. So these are. are significant words that should make a significant difference. So on, on that same theme then, that the names we give things can make a difference. Um, I, I was looking at a quote from Francois Chalet at Google who said that uh, they considered that using the term artificial intelligence was in fact a category error and it should be cognitive automation. What are your thoughts on that kind of labelling? I think in this case too, labels can help a lot uh, to make sure that we are not misled into thinking that we're doing something as opposed to something else. Mm. Artificial intelligence was always a bit of a, a catchy um, advertisement for uh, a, a, an old conference in the 50s and today mm. for some kind of uh, very simple programming anyway. Uh, so I'm all in favour of making sure that our vocabulary uh, respects the real nature of what we're talking about. At the same time, uh, I hope it's not just a, uh, another uh, fashionable way of renaming things that just to make sure that they are fresher. Because by now, everybody's speaking about AI, whereas <laughs> in my case, I speak about cognitive advanced something. So yes. let's be careful about not uh, just relabeling things that are old and unchanged. 
Yes. But if labels represent a change in conceptual understanding, that's very, very well. Well, fortunately, um, IT doesn't have a doesn't have a history of renaming things just to resell it, does it? So that's fortunate. Web as a utility uh, was a misunderstanding, was a view that was kind of misunderstood, wasn't it? Uh, people started using that term as if the web was like gas or electric that came into the house. And I just wonder whether there was a similar misunderstanding now with the term personal information that it started to become almost a separate entity from ourselves, that it, it's, it's in a little it's in a little container away from ourselves. Uh, this is something you have a view on, I think. Yeah, I think it's important to, in this case too, uh, be uh, clear on what we mean by personal information. Uh, first of all, not all data, not all information is personal. There's a lot of stuff out there that we should be able to use without not going through particular legal constraints. Um, so they take the, the data about the weather or data mm. about the, the sea level or the flooding in a particular region and so on, traffic, etc. But then, of course, I'm concerned about our personal data, personal information. At that point, we need to be able to distinguish what we mean by my data, my information. I mean, for some people, uh, just to be clear, uh, they may mean my information in the same way in which you talk about my shoes. No, something that I bought, it's mine, I can sell if I want, I can use if I want, you cannot because they are not yours. Well, I think that that is restrictive. Not all my data are like my shoes. Mm. Some of my data are more like my hands, my lungs, my eyes. They make part of me. They belong to yeah. me in a sort of constitutive way. So let's be careful about what my data mean. Personal sometimes is as in make me who I am, and therefore we need to be much more careful. Sometimes they're just, um, as I said, like my shoes. In mind that it's also my football team. It doesn't belong to me, I didn't bought it, <laughs> and it belongs to many, many people. So they're also socially shared. That picture of the whole classroom when I was a teenager, well, it's mine, yes, but it's also theirs in a very extended way. Yes. So um, I guess uh, being clear about this point also clarifies why personal information needs to be protected more or less depending on whether we're talking about something very, very close and private and personal or something that I'm happy to share with someone else, no harm done, uh, and that it's okay. So that's that's quite difficult to, to sort of put layers around. People people themselves don't think of it like that, do they? Have philosophers gone to the extent of actually categorising the personal level of information? It's a difficult point because um, it, it varies from person to person. Mm. Uh, you may find some people uh, that think, look, my uh, sexual orientation, uh, it's probably fine. You can share it with anyone. I, I don't care. I just... it's. Is exactly, and in the previous example, like my football team. I yeah. share with anyone else and uh, go ahead. And uh, for some other people, it might be the most private and, and even secret sort of um, thing that they ever uh, cherish. Mm. So um, I think we need to be careful not confusing a distinction with, oh, it's the same distinction for everybody. Right. So maybe for some people, uh, your dietary requirements might be a bit embarrassing. Maybe you are allergic to something you don't want to tell and so on. I mean, in my case, I like pizza and I'm happy to tell uh, uh, everybody, uh, <laughs> including uh, anyone who's listening. Um, yeah, so I'm with you. <laughs> yeah, so um, let's make sure that we have these two different points clear in mind. Mm. Uh, some personal information is very private, very, uh, very significant. You want to share it only with some people, maybe with nobody else. And some other, it's totally fine to be shared with uh, anyone in, in, uh, who has access to it. That's okay. But what exactly that means for each of us may vary. I recently saw a quote from uh, the renowned Noel Sharkey. He was quoting somebody at a conference saying this. 
Ethicists wag their fingers at bias in computing, but they're wrong. This is not a moral question, it's just bad engineering. What's your response to that as a, as a philosopher of information? I like to think that several problems can be solved by better engineering. Mm. Uh, it is a matter of design, and bad design is certainly something that's going to cause enormous problems all over the place. Having said that, uh, good design, good engineering is not enough. So I think that there's a confusion here between what is necessary and what is sufficient. Mm. It is necessary to have good engineering, good design, good coding, absolutely. Mm. Is it sufficient? Sometimes it isn't. Because the perfect coding and the perfect engineering of the wrong kind of tool might lead to terrible, in fact, terrific, so right. uh, in some other cases, or terrible um, uh, outcomes, depending on what we use that for. So I don't want to run the usual trivial example of uh, these are tools and depends on how you use them because it's not entirely true. Mm. But reducing everything to good engineering means being blind to the fact that good engineering is the necessary but sometimes and in some significant cases insufficient condition. What we accept socially, individually, ethically as something that we cherish, we want or we don't want to see, we would like to change, well that is a matter of ethics, it's not a matter of good engineering. Mm. So you decide um, what your ethical framework is before you engineer something in response to that? I think I would say certainly before, uh, but also during and after. Uh, so before, when you start, for example, looking at the requirements, mm. uh, that is also an ethical uh, decision. Yeah. For example, something that might be a little bit too consuming energy-wise. And think about all the algorithms we have these days for neural networks. Mm. Uh, all the deep uh, sort of, uh, nets and, uh, that we have around, the, the new wave of uh, artificial machine learning and so on, they're hugely consuming. Or think about Bitcoin. Mm. Hugely, no, yeah. huge impact on the environment. That's an ethical decision that you have to make at yes. the beginning. It's not about engineering, good or bad. So before, just an example, but then during when uh, uh, you start privileging some uh, solutions rather than others, design is about making decisions, it's about choices, it's not imposed on anyone, and then afterwards in terms of deployment. So I'm thinking about uh, uh, the, the uh, conceptualization, so the design stage, the uh, development stage, and the deployment stage, DDD, at each stage there is ethical decision to take, mm. ethical concerns to be addressed. It can be done, and, uh, and that's what good engineering at 360 degrees look like. The digital world has endless possibilities and seemingly endless challenges. BCS is working to find truth and build trust by sharing experiences, debating what we know and discovering what we don't. Get involved in the BCS's Truth and Trust campaign and tell us what you think about the issues raised in this podcast at bcs.org slash truth. Um, so that brings us rather neatly onto the idea of, of ethical frameworks. So because, uh, as, we, as we mentioned earlier, the idea of ethics being included from the outset has gone rather up the agenda quite appropriately. Algorithm Watch recently, I think it was mid-2019, said that there are currently about 80 different ethical frameworks. If you're going to make a decision as an individual organisation uh, to make sure your ethics are right, how, how do you navigate that minefield to start with? It is an unfortunate outcome of a positive interest. Um, mm. At some point, you know, a couple of years ago, everybody started talking about the ethics of AI, ethics of machine learning, ethics of algorithms, uh, machine ethics, you name it. 
uh, roughly addressing this new wave of digital uh, technologies and everybody thought, well, we need to uh, come up with a set of principles, a code of practice, a framework. Unfortunately, instead of getting together and organizing ourselves around a set of common principles, everybody thought, well, I have my own list. Um, it became also a bad habit because, of course, instead of ad adopting a good set of principles, people started looking in a sort of smart way of retrofitting whatever no, they were doing anyway with a choice of principles yeah. out there. There's such yeah. a long list, no, you can pick and choose. That's a bad idea. Yeah. The truth is that uh, by now we have a couple of uh, international frameworks that are pretty robust. One has been provided by the uh, European Union. Uh, I'm actually a member of the, of the group there, of the high-level group for uh, the ethics of AI. Uh, and the other one, which is very similar, in fact, has inherited most of the work anyway, is by the OECD. And okay. these are uh, very few principles, quite elementary and basic. And you can look at those sort of framework, one or the other, as a bit of a constitution that can help us to do the right thing. Okay. It's not telling you what to do, but it gives you some kind of the, the, the borders, the, the, the region within which something that is okay no, should be placed. At that point, uh, there is much progress that can be done, including by organizations like uh, the, the BCS, uh, because at that point, the implementation, the practicalities, the operational nature of what looks like good practice professionally as an engineer, as a computer scientist, but that's exactly what the community can determine. Mm. So last time we, we discussed the hypothetical book, Socially Sound IT Building, um, I think you said, you said it could be called. Do you think in the last 18 months or so since we last spoke, there's been progress made into what it actually looks like? There has been progress uh, on uh, several fronts. Uh, if you are like me on the slightly optimistic side of things, <laughs> you think that uh, that's good news. Mm. If you look for uh, something to complain about, then one you may say that it's not enough progress. Yeah. Uh, the usual too little, too late. I don't think so. But it has been a rather slow movement in terms of yeah. progress. Now, progress looks like this. We have, for example, in the UK, uh, the CDI, the Centre for Data uh, Ethics and uh, Innovation. This is a unique experiment, not tried anywhere else in the world. Uh, in that sense, the UK is ahead of any other nation, mm -hmm. uh, having uh, the government kind sort of level, an organisation that is looking into ethical issues generated by, and therefore it need to be addressed, digital technologies. Mm. And it's progress already, I mean, uh, and it's working. Uh, we, we are producing uh, you know, election time uh, uh, required uh, us to be quiet, of course, but uh, in the following months, uh, in 2020, we will be producing a number of reports, a number of uh, uh, recommendations to the government on hot topics, mm. um, uh, abuse online uh, and targeting online. Uh, face uh, recognition technology, mm. uh, the misuse of data in particular industrial sectors. And I don't want to anticipate too much, but essentially there will be quite a, a number of steps to be taken. Yeah. But we also have many other cases. This is just one where people are more aware, they expect more. So sometimes uh, the confusion may be, oh look, nothing has changed. Well, there is an, an environmental change here. that something that was taken either as non-problematic or normal in the past is no longer no, expected to be okay now. And so expectations are, are changing and our capacity to address those expectations is improving. So I would say, yes, good progress, although much, much is left to 
to be done. I mean, no, no, no reason to be complacent. You give an example there of where the UK is doing very well. Uh, I just something else I picked up um, that happens in Denmark at the moment, where when they introduce a, a new technology, they, they they seem to be a lot more effective at looking at the potential societal impact before they do it, using a social dialogue approach with consensus conferences. Is, are we doing enough uh, in the UK specifically on that? Or are we just introducing stuff way too quickly? Let's put it this way. We are introducing a lot of novelties in the UK because we are ahead of the you know, innovation curve, so to right. speak. So things happen here. Mm-hmm. Uh, happen in many other places, but especially in the UK uh, because of the legal, uh, the academic research environment, because of the uh, industry that is lively here, because of the finance. For many, many reasons, this is the right environment where to try things first. Mm. So, um, inevitably, there is a bit of a cost there, uh, yeah. which is to be ahead of anyone else, and therefore, uh, if you have to bump against the wall, you're the first one to do so. <laughs> um, at the same time, I think efforts are um, being made and are increasing in both a dialogue, uh, social dialogue, about what we like and what we don't, what is socially preferable or, or, or less, and education from you know, the standard education on you know, sort of schooling all the way to maybe uh, having more uh, say on the BBC uh, uh, with basic you know, things saying no this is what, how it works this is how it happens so I think that uh, uh, in this case too uh, there are reasons to be um, mildly optimistic but certainly much more can and needs to be done let me just want make one final comment which mm. is um, we should also be careful about comparing ourselves to the UK which is a, a quite a, a sizable region uh, and not many tens of millions of people yeah. to small nations. Mm. Uh, it's one thing to you know, say uh, a few million people on board and uh, as opposed to you know, 60 or something. Yeah. Um, and that magnitude makes a difference in terms of uh, complexity, logistics and so on. But having said that, there's again, no reason to uh, justify any lack of effort. Um, I think efforts will be made and we, we will see an increase in... Uh, uh, especially governmental uh, sort of uh, input here. So scaling consensus is a little bit tricky. It is. Uh, yeah. So sometimes I hear people comparing not just the UK but also Italy, for example, or France, Germany, mm. uh, to uh, the usual um, Baltic countries. Uh, yes. And, and you have to remind people, for example, or say the Scandinavian countries, mm. you have to remind people that uh, you know, the whole Finland, I think you know, people can check now as we speak, uh, you know, <laughs> ooh, but what is it, no, six million people maybe, no. uh, or around that number? I mean, there are more people in London. Uh, so we should be careful uh, not to confuse things that can happen in essentially a large city, which is also a state, versus you know, a, a large country, which is not known in terms of territory, but also yeah. in terms of culture, diversity, generations, people, number of people, that you know, scales up in terms of complexity and difficulty quite rapidly. Yeah. Uh, we should be fully aware of that. Otherwise, this comparison will say Finland, they're always going to run and they're going to be a little bit funny. To hear a range of fascinating speakers live, come along to BCS Insights 2020 on June 4th at the Crystal in London. Tech leaders and professionals, futurologists, influencers and innovators will discuss the way we use technology today and explore how we create a bright digital future for everyone. Find out more at bcs.org events.
So our conversation already is, is veered between uh, nation-level things and what we can do as individuals and, and almost all points in between. So just looking at a bigger picture question, is capitalism itself part of this problem? We, we, we tend to lord self-made men, entrepreneurs, perhaps simply because they've made a lot of cash and um, perhaps don't look too closely at the ethics involved in that. And, and now that technology allows such a powerful use of of the impacts are large, aren't they? Is there an issue there? There is, uh, and um, I hope it's an issue that we will be able to resolve, but as all historical big, large, long-term trends, it won't be resolved you know, one one week to the next. I mean, it, it will take, I would say, maybe more than a generation if we want to change it, assuming that we want to change it. Mm. The capitalism that we have inherited today is a, to use our common labels, as a neoliberal capitalism that privileges um, unregulated competition and uh, the uh, exploitation of uh, resources without any particular uh, care for externalities, as we normally say. Yeah. Meaning, well, I do what I do, I do it legally, I extract value from what I'm doing, I don't care about the impact that this may have on other things, which is terrible. And uh, it's also capitalism that uh, is privileging, that's the, the third feature that I find problematic, consumerism. Yeah. So it's not about, for example, uh, an, an ethics of care or an ethics of experience. It's a, uh, an ethics about production and consumption of objects, yeah. no matter where they come from and what the impact on the environment or on human rights or you know, the, the value of a decent life looks like. Now, their form of capitalism is going to be a, a disaster for society and for the environment. Mm. We already see it. The polarization in rich and poor, the lack of care for those who have less privileges and less fortune, and the impact on the environment are a disaster. Yeah. Do we have the will, the ability, the capacity to change course of action? It's not easy, but it can be done and better be done because it's leading to a catastrophic you know, disaster in a matter of shall we say, a few decades. Mm. So people listening to this uh, conversation who are in their 20s, they will see it. Yeah. Uh, and therefore, we ought to them and to those who are not yet born and may still be born to redress this carefully right now. At the moment, we're not doing enough and we're not doing all the right things that we could be doing in order to put capitalism back on the capital C. Yeah. The real good capitalism, that means private property, decent competition, good taxation, social welfare, and care for those who don't have the same opportunity to start with. Mm. That is a decent form of capitalism that generates wealth and makes sure that that wealth is good for everybody. Yeah. Now, that capitalism, we have lost sight of it, but it's, it's the engine of wealth that we don't want to lose. What we want to lose is all the bad bits that we have accumulated in the last few decades. Now, the implication of some of those bad bits, I, I just wanted to bring um, uh, to you with that with specific example. This this uh, outfit called Clearview. They've apparently scraped three billion facial images from from Google and Facebook, uh, and they've sold their capabilities to some law enforcement agencies. And of course, there's been some short term benefit in that some people have been arrested, they've done murders, or, or or whatever it might be. But it seems to me like they're skirting a little bit around um, legal requirements there. 
because the other implications are stalking and identifying protesters you don't agree with and blackmail. So I just wonder whether you felt that the, the fact that this is a very small startup in itself is part of the problem. See, if Facebook had done this, we'd all know about it, wouldn't we? And a small startup that can be very agile because of the way that our legislation is, does these things, we seem to have less recourse to actually do something about it. What's your view on that? We do then, uh, in case you are pointing out, uh, is really a bit of a roundabout of, of a number of problems. Uh, it collects in, in and of itself several issues. One, the lack of legislation in grey areas where we, we need to be a little bit uh, more uh, uh, nimble and perhaps faster in mm. making sure that there are clear understanding of what's right and, and wrong, now, legally speaking, not just in terms of social expectations or ethical codes of practice. The second point is uh, the, the specific technology in question, the, the face recognition technology, which is highly problematic. Mm. We hear these days that uh, the, on the continent in the European Union, they are planning to uh, put a moratorium on the use of uh, uh, yeah. face recognition technology, uh, not in terms of forbidding its use, but in terms of, now let's have a look at what can be used for and where is good and where is bad because it's, it's a quite dangerous technology to misuse. Yeah. But I know we have having uh, I hear these days uh, uh, informally we are having a very similar conversation here in the UK. So that's the second point. You know the the, the example you provided. It's, it's a difficult technology. There's a grey area uh, of um, uh, legislation, and I think what uh, generates you know, the the final ingredient here is the push for. Um, unregulated, uh, unquestioned, and sometimes unethical innovation. As if innovation were this uh, magic word, mm. and no matter what innovation uh, we're talking about, is always good. Okay, yeah. That is not yeah. true. The conversation we're not seeing around, and uh, I'd like to, you know, uh, if possible, say, make a contribution to this conversation today as um, hopefully a step forward, is let's consider what kind of innovation we're talking about. But the meetings I go to, no, where the politicians are there, um, uh, business people, uh, academic people, professional people, we always skip that moment saying, oh, uh, is that a good innovation or bad innovation? Mm. As if innovation were the holy grail, where something that, mm. the, that is untouchable, and if you are, by any possible means, not decreasing chances of innovation, well, that's going to be bad. Not true. There is bad innovation. There is yeah. terrible innovation. There is innovation that generates more problems, more pain, more pollution, more social inequality, and we shouldn't have it. Mm. So let's have a discussion about what kind of innovation are we regulating, what kind of innovation are we excluding, then I think we are on better grounds to determine the future of our technology. So the argument would, would often be put forward that any sort of regulation curtails innovation. Would, would that be better framed as um, regulation is required so that when you innovate you're doing it more? Socially, anyway, because there's a regulation that you need to take care of. Yes, I mean, the innovation should be almost like a, like a filter. Uh, sorry, the, the regulation for innovation, like that regulation fills it out or, not, or stops bad innovation yeah. and enables good innovation to yeah. go through. Now, the very idea that uh, anything that stops innovation is, is not a filter but a tab. Now, you close the tab and therefore there's less innovation and that's bad. Yeah. That's a bad metaphor. Yeah. I'd rather see this as a filter that enables the, you know, the uh, long-term good, valuable innovation to flourish and the short-sighted maybe you know, make a few million dollars today and goodbye uh, tomorrow. 
stop, like asbestos, just, just to give you an example. I mean, asbestos was mm. a great innovation at yes. some point. To, to, we built you know, chunks of Oxford with asbestos. <laughs> it was a bad idea. And yeah. uh, uh, it generates cancer. Now, if people had been a little bit more careful, we have had less problems in the past and not so many buildings to restore today. Mm. So there is such a thing as bad innovation. Think asbestos. Putting lead in petrol. That was a bad innovation. Exactly. <laughs> now, look, uh, some other bits and bobs. And just thinking about uh, individuals. There's, so our theme in, in Insights 2020, when that comes around in June, is going to be very much about what an, what an individual can do. A little phrase that came to mind, he that is faithful in least is faithful in much. So actually, we can look at what individuals do, just in small things. And it might tell us something about how they might act in bigger situations. So here's a little quote from Grady Booch, uh, IBM uh, uh, inventor of UML, he said, every line of code represents an ethical decision. Now that's that's pretty small, right? Yeah, I like I like that quote uh, because um, uh, although it's kind of a bit extreme, uh, but it you know, brings home the, the message of saying, look, uh, every little step we take is, uh, is a matter of uh, making a tiny difference that will make a big difference. Uh, so that's one uh, aspect that is, that is crucial. Now, at the same time, uh, we also want to consider that, that there is no difference that makes no difference, so to speak. Mm. However, in order to do the right difference, in order to push things in the right direction, sometimes small differences are useless. Now, the, the way perhaps I, I, can, I can convey this, this idea more clearly is by using the, the word contribution. I mean, the word contribution contains the first three letters, which means together, contribution. It's not attribution just by myself. Mm. So uh, imagine uh, these days in terms of, uh, um, well, let's go back to the lines of code. I mean, today, you know, plenty of software that we use has been uh, developed along you know, years, maybe different companies by other companies, then reforming, restructuring is version 7.22. And so what you find is that um, there is a collaborative enterprise, a coming together, uh, a sort of coordination of efforts that makes the difference that we want. Mm. Hopefully, the, the preferable, good difference. Mm. Now, let me give you a different example, um, which I have used uh, have in the past, but, but I hope it's, it, it helps to convey the idea. So, there's a car in, in the street and, uh, uh, and it's not working, so we have to push it. If you go and push and come back and say, oh, I've done my duty, uh, well, surely I'll be disappointed. So, yeah, that's totally useless. Oh, but I did my little thing. I, yeah. I went and pushed. Right. So I know, but you know, if we're not at least five people pushing one, two, three, all together, then <laughs> it won't go anywhere. No. Uh, that particular point uh, becomes pressing when we have the delusion that by just doing the right thing by myself, I am sort of entitled to sleep at night. Right. It may not be good enough. That's why, now I'm sorry for the uh, moment of advertisement, not meant, not required. It's all right, Carol. That's why they, you know, working together through an association, a society, mm. a group, joining an effort is mm. the right thing to do. Mm. So not only doing the right thing, but doing the right thing together, because there are, by now, problems so demanding in terms of coordination that unless we all push together, we will not make any difference. No. So to be stark, yes, by all means, no, make sure that you turn off that particular light if you're not in the room. But trust me, turning off that little light in the room will make no difference whatsoever to global warming. Yeah. Zero. 
unless we all do that together at mm. the same time, one, two, three, push. So coordination, coordination, coordination. That is the collaborative enterprise in which we have to join forces. And that requires efforts, but also a touch of sacrifice. Because doing the right thing just by myself is 100% satisfactory. Coming together with you means that we have to get there at the same time. And maybe I have to sacrifice a little bit of my freedom to join your yeah. freedom and do it together. Yeah, that's very interesting. Now, I, this leading me on to um, something that I know you've spoken about a lot, which is the the erosion or, or, or maybe the melding of offline and online life. How, how does that fit into that picture of, of, of doing things in a unified manner? I think that can help a lot or hinder. Uh, often happens with technology. It can uh, hinder our common shared uh, collaborative efforts mm. by making each of us feel unique, individual, single. I can be self-sufficient, autonomous, couldn't care less about the rest of the world. As long as my selfies are out there, as long as my comments on Facebook uh, get uh, liked, as long mm. as my tweets get retweeted, that's it. That's, that's all I need. That would be really a shame. Mm. Shame on, on our in, for, for our intelligence and, and for the future of this uh, uh, planet, to be honest, and our society on it. Then the on-life uh, experience, this ero- erosion of the online, offline, the coming together in this sort of shared digital space could actually bring a, a good, enormous advantage in terms of collaborative efforts. Nothing like, you know, one, two, three, push all together online in an on-life experience make such a difference. Mm. And so we have seen actually this not going very far, but already some examples of these efforts with some of the uh, political movements, say uh, recently Hong Kong. I mean, yeah. a lot of the, of the, of the good uh, democratic push that uh, happens in many corners of the world happens through technology, because technology enables us to get together. Yeah. And imagine a single individual complaining in the square. That's nothing. But if we all go there, if we all complain, if we all shout, then things may actually change. This is happening also now in the other country of mine, uh, having two passports, only in Italy, with the uh, Sardines movement, and as a, which is a no, social political movement. So I believe that the opportunities and the technology to take advantage of those opportunities is there. We just have to take the right road ahead of us. And that's an interesting example, Hong Kong, because um, I read, in fact, I downloaded the app an app about an app that could uh, communicate in an unmediated way between individuals. I think it's called Bridgeify, which uses Bluetooth and just makes little nodes in a crowd of people they communicate directly without anybody else uh, really uh, being able to eavesdrop on their conversations. Obviously, because no one else uses it in my local vicinity, I can't use the app, to be honest with you. But that's interesting that that sort of technology has arisen as a kind of response to requiring a more private way of communicating as a sort of organised crowd. You have to be in the same geographic location to do that. Indeed, and uh, I think uh, the distinction you're making, I I believe, uh, is quite essential. We can be social while being private at the same time. Mm. Uh, because we can be social as a group, we can be social as joining forces for a larger cause, uh, a bigger effort, a threshold that can be then uh, overcome because we are many and, and each of us contributes what he or she can contribute. That doesn't mean that we lose our identity, our personal sort of profile or our privacy, not at all. It means that there's a, there's a component of me that is leading to 
something bigger and, and more significant than just me by myself. Mm. I like to remind people sometimes of, of the beginning of the of the American Constitution, which is very beautiful. As I said, it, it really starts with this beautiful phrase. It says, "We the people," and that's beautiful. I mean, mm. it doesn't list a lot of people. It's like Mary, John, Peter. No, it's a, there's a, there's a strength in that we the people that is unmatched by any individual effort. At the same time, it doesn't mean no erosion uh, of uh, individuality of mm. uh, in a sort of almost nightmarish, semi-communist, uh, all grey, all the same, I'm just a number in, in a big, big sort of uh, crowd. Not in that sense, yeah. but in a willful sense of joining forces. So uh, the example you provide, I think it's, it's perfect in terms of uh, this uh, social nature of uh, the web and uh, similar technologies, at the same time protecting individuality and privacy and enabling joining forces for the good cause. Yeah. Um, I probably should have asked this question in a different order, really, looking at looking at my little notes here now. But um, uh, just think about this idea of making algorithmic decisions explainable to people. So we, you, we hear a lot about black boxes and when it goes to a certain levels of neural net that it's impossible to find out why a decision was made. How important do you think it is that we, we get that right, that we nail that? Yeah, I think that in this case, too, there's been a lot of uh, narrative, shall we say, by especially the mass media on this... Uh, mysterious black boxes and, and I know <laughs> people who are listening to us uh, are on the technical side of things mm. so they know exactly what that means it does not mean it does not mean that of course that it's magic there no, no. You, you, you shake it and, and, and hope for the best um, it's not uh, something that we have no understanding whatsoever it does mean that having created systems the complexity of which is then engineered to obtain results that otherwise would not be obtainable what I mean is no, lots and lots of nodes, lots and lots of thresholds, and lots and lots of links, to such an extent that by the time all that sort of uh, network has finally found some kind of stability, we're not quite sure how it got there. Well, this is not very different from the case in which, for example, you have a lot of traffic in London, and you ask why there is traffic in London, and someone say, well, it's Monday morning, it's raining, and the schools are open, so it's eight o'clock, no, rush out, that's mm -hmm. it. Say, oh, okay, that, that's a good explanation. And then someone comes and says, oh, no, no, you have no idea, it's a black box. Why? Because you need to provide to me, as an explanation, why everybody driving a car in London at that moment, and it might be like 500,000 people, was there. For what reasons? What projections? Right. Like, well, that's impossible. Say, so, yeah. aha, see, <laughs> it's a mystery. We don't know. It's a black box. No, it isn't. Mm. It's just that it's too complicated to provide. But, you know, given infinite amount of time and patience, I could tell you why Mary and John and Peter, meaning right. their node and their other node, any other node, with their threshold, with their influence, it's just not feasible, but not because there's something magic. Yes. There's nothing magic, black boxy, you know, of some kind of a Harry Potter sort of <laughs> moment. <laughs> it's just very much complicated. Now, once you have the mystified black box thing, mm. coming up with an explanation, means different things. Is it an explanation in terms of general performance of the system? Well, driving in London, traffic, that might be good enough. Or is it because I want to know exactly whether these are, are suboptimal solutions and I need to improve them? Well, then a different kind of explanation is required. Mm. Or is there bias in the system? So it's not suboptimal right. in terms of, say, efficiency or efficacy, but it's in terms of I don't like the outcome. Well, then I could uh, do something else. For example, I could change the, uh, the input and see whether same, exactly the same input 
with the only difference that one variable is female applicant, male applicant generates a different result for that yeah. mortgage application. Yes. Then I know. So we got ways of testing and trying and understanding what's going on. So I would just calm down with the black box narrative. I would <laughs> inquire more clearly about what the explanation is for, and therefore what tools are right for what question one is asking. At that point, I think there's plenty of work that can be done. And by the way, there are plenty of companies out there, without naming anyone in particular, but you can imagine your suspects, that have plenty of tools these days to explain yeah. exactly what's going on, which area of the network is actually responsible for that particular outcome. So my bet is that this black box season is almost over. Right. So in fact, if we focus a little bit more on AI auditing, for want of a better expression, and AI explaining, might just demystify that a little bit for people and uh, take the fear out of it. Completely. I mean, and auditing, for example, will be more about the legal ethical uh, aspect. Mm. So there are protected features you know, and characteristics of individuals. Yeah. yeah. Was the decision taken in that particular way by the algorithm by relying on, say, the ethnicity of the individual or yeah. not? Easily checkable. Yeah. Easily checkable. Yeah. So, yeah, I can check, I can test, I can tell you, yeah, this algorithm not made a mistake or did not. Or was it because of the data, which is most mostly not the, the problem, uh, often the, the case. The data on which the algorithm was trained was totally biased. Mm -hmm. Hence, you know, the algorithm you now is providing outcomes that we don't quite uh, like, we don't appreciate, or uh, even illegal. Discriminating people for a mortgage, for a job application, uh, for a benefit, a social benefit of, of, of some kind, or welfare. Etc. So, demystify and focus on the problem. Uh, yeah. Keep calm and try to go ahead with explanation. Well, that's been an absolutely fascinating chat, uh, Luciano. Thank you very much. I'd I, I like to end, and I'm going to hopefully do this as the series progresses, on a lighter note. Uh, so I've got one more question for you. In fact, funny enough, we spoke about this last time. Um, um, Elon Musk recently and Stephen Hawking in the past are talking about the fact that we'll have an AI apocalypse at some point. Uh, but on the other side of the equation, uh, the likes of Ray Kurzweil think that we're just going to have a... Um, a marvellous moment of singularity where we can all upload our minds and uh, and live forever. Which one's going to come first? <laughs> neither, neither. <laughs> uh, uh, there was a recent article. I was uh, I was pleased at the same time disappointed by the BBC when it published uh, a recent article saying, "Oh, the, the winter of AI may actually coming," and all those speculations about AI conquering the world or you know, making us uh, the, the the kings of all this world and now serving us. Uh, mm. Basically, the, the AI that you, you find in uh, in Star Wars is yeah. not going to happen. And, I, and my comment on that article was like, well, even the BBC who actually contributed to that you know, terrible, you know, misleading narrative is finally realizing that you know, some of the things that has been publishing, they were completely wrong, completely misleading. And that is a public service. You can imagine when people need to sell this stuff. Yeah. So uh, honestly, what we're going to see uh, is AI as another wonderful, amazing technology generated by this extraordinary you know, species on this planet called human beings. Mm. And that is the future. It's our responsibility to make sure there is a good future for everybody, environment included. I've been saying this like a broken record for the net for the past 20 years. I hope someone is listening. <laughs> I hope so too. Thank you very much. Thank you. You have been listening to BCS, the Chartered Institute for IT's Gem of All Mechanisms podcast. For much more content, please visit bcs.org or follow us on social media.